We're in a series for the summer entitled Life Between the Times. We're going to be going through the first letter to the church in Thessalonica and the second. And this morning we'll be in chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have the Crossbridge Pinecrest app, click on the notes icon. All the passages are, well, are there as well and on the screen. I also want to give a promo for the app. There's a lot of extra notes I've placed there and some exercises and things I'm going to encourage uh, for you this week. And so if you don't have the app, download it in the App Store. Just type in Crossbridge Pinecrest and you'll find all the notes under the notes icon there. So one of the things that I'm always trying to do is to stay up to date with the new phrases. Anyone else feel like they're always behind on the phrases? I mean, all the time, but I heard a new one recently, at least it's new for me, and I love it, and I'm going to use it all the time. It's a phrase that you use to replace, that's amazing, which I say all the time. That's amazing, or that's incredible. Instead, you say this, look at God. I like that, because I'm a pastor, and we're in church, you know. So when there's a, a breakthrough, or a miracle, or an amazing thing that happens in someone's life that... It's just extraordinary, you say, look at God. Now, when I heard this phrase, I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like, in our cultural moment, there is this phrase that is rising up among the youth in particular that is pointing to God, to honor God, and to respect God, and to say, look what God did in your life. So I, I went to Google the phrase to see, like, when it became popular. I mean, people have been saying this forever, but it's just become this phrase, and, and where, does it, where did it start, where did it originate? And I found out something that was quite shocking, that the way that that phrase is used by the majority of people is the exact opposite of the way that you think it should be used, or the way that I want to use it, or you would use it. It does not mean actually look at the divine being who created the world and loves his people and is involved in their life bringing miracles and breakthrough. It does not mean honor God. It means, look at you. The definition for look at God, if you go online, is to honor somebody that is God-like. Look what you've done, as if you're functioning like a God. You're the one that created that success. You're the one that enabled that breakthrough. You're the one that has done this. Look at you. And instead of saying, look at you, it's look at God. That's kind of shocking, right? But it's actually not, right? Because we live in a culture that is a look-at-me culture. Every one of us in this room is, struggles with this. We are tempted by this to say, look at me. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look at my success. Look at my family. Look at my achievements. Look at my wisdom. Look at my insight. We're all tempted and motivated by wanting people to see the business that we have and the things that we do and the things that we've accomplished. You know, in the summer, in order to tolerate the heat in Miami, you have to be by the water, right? You have to be by a pool. You got to be by the ocean. And one of the things I've noticed recently is when you go to a pool and there's a bunch of kids and they're all jumping in the pool, doing cannonballs and spin tops and flips and all these things, there's something they always say to all the adults that are sitting there trying to have conversations. <laughs> say, look at me. You ever notice that? They're about to do a cannonball, and they can't just do the cannonball with their friends. They want everyone to see. Look at me. And then when someone else does a better trick, 
then they, now it's the next level. Hey, hey, watch this, watch this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it better. My splash is going to be bigger. Was it bigger? Look at me. This is what our cultural moment is like. Everyone is posturing with this, look at me, look at me, look what I've done. Oh, you did that? Look at me. So the title of the sermon this morning is, Mind Your Own Business. Mind your own business. This is what God's word says. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, mind your own business. Here's God's word to us, just a few verses in chapter 4, starting in the second half of verse 10 through verse 12. Here's what it says. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the earlier part of this chapter, Paul is praising his friends in Thessalonica. He is saying that they have been demonstrating extraordinary love He says that they have been showing brotherly love. The word is Philadelphia. They've been showing Philadelphia, brotherly love, to not only those in their city, but to those in the surrounding region of Macedonia. They've been generous and loving. They've been sending financial support to churches that are struggling. They have been hospitable with outsiders that have been traveling through on business and work and leisure, bringing them into their homes. They are a church that is showing great love. Now, they live in this city of Thessalonica that is a thriving and bustling city. And there's a temptation and a struggle that is happening that Paul is pivoting to. So he's saying, you have been showing great Philadelphia love to all of these people and people outside of your city are taking notice and they're praising you, but I have seen something that is faltering. As they live in a culture where everyone is posturing to look at me, that's the struggle of cities in particular. Look at me, look what I've done. Paul urges them to have different ambitions than maybe some of the ambitions that are creeping up. He says, aspire to a quiet life. Now, the word aspire is actually better translated, make it your ambition. Make it your ambition. I was thinking this week, what are my ambitions? You know, all of us every year typically start to think about our ambitions for the new year. We write down our goals and our resolutions. I would say most of us here, we have brand new ones because those ones didn't work and we got new ones, we changed them. We have ambitions for the moment. We have ambitions for our life. We have dreams. I want to ask you to do something right now, okay? Everyone take your phone out, or if you take notes physically, you can just write there. Take your phone out and write this down, okay? Write down what your ambitions are. It could just be a bullet point. It could be a word that means something to you. Don't think too deeply. Just when you think about your professional ambitions, the ambitions you have for your family, your romantic ambitions, your personal ambitions, your spiritual ambitions, what are the things that jump out of your mind? Like, what, these are my dreams. These are my goals. These are my ambitions. What are the things that jump out? I'm going to keep talking, but I want you to do that. We're going to come back to this. It's important. What are your ambitions? See, for many of us, when I'm talking about ambition, 
there are things that immediately flood your mind. In your career, in a relationship, in your faith, personal goals that you have, that they just come right out. Because ambition is a powerful thing. We know that. But there are other ambitions that we have that we know affect us and influence us, but they don't jump out of our mind. They're more subtle. We have all types of dreams and goals. Some are prominent. Some are behind the scenes. And Paul says, I want you to make this your ambition. You have all these other ambitions in your life. You have all these other things that you're doing. Here's the thing that I want you to aspire to. Here are the things that I want, here's the thing I want you to dedicate yourself to. A quiet life. Now, did any of you write quiet life down? Probably not because you don't maybe know what exactly the Apostle Paul means. And some of you are like, my life has been so chaotic, I want a quiet life. Now, does Paul mean here that your ambition is to live a life that is kind of behind the scenes and reserved and quiet, where no one really notices you? You kind of live in a bubble. Just don't, you know, don't cause any ripples. No. That's not what quiet life means. In fact, there was a Greek philosopher during this time period named Philo who was very influential. And he compared the quiet life, which was a common term, with an evil life. He contrasted it. He said, you can either live an evil life or you can live a quiet life. See, the quiet life that Paul is talking about is a life that is honorable, a life that is respectable, a life that is noble. It is a life that looks to benefit the common good, not just take from it. It is a life that does not want to stir up problems, but wants to bring blessing to the community. It's a life that people look at and they say, wow, that is a respectable honorable life. That person looks to give more than they take. That person doesn't stir up problems. They want to bring blessings. That's a quiet life. The Apostle Paul says, make it your ambition to live a respectable, honorable, quiet life. And then he attaches two aspects to a quiet life. He says, you're going to mind your own affairs and you're going to work with your hands. What does that mean? And mind your own affairs is pretty clear. It means to be about your business. Mind your own business. Know what your calling is. Know what your purpose is. Know what your affairs are, what you're supposed to do, and be about that. Focus on your goals, your calling, your purposes, and work with your hands. Now, what that really means is, when you mind your own business, then you need to put in the work. Don't be dependent, he says, on others. You yourself put in the work. It's a commitment to excellence. It's a commitment to effort, to put in the work for the business that God has given you. Make it your ambition to live this kind of life. A quiet life, a respectable life, is someone who minds their own business puts in the work, and is looking to benefit the common good, not take from it. And not dependent upon anyone. Now, there's something that's implied here that's really, really important. And it's why I asked you to begin to write down your ambitions. Because in order for you to mind your own business and then put in the work, 
you have to know the business that God has given you. You have to know clearly what your calling is, the purpose that God has for you, the very unique place that God has you in life and where he's calling you to walk. What is the business that God has given you? And that is where the struggle for many of us comes. It could be professionally, it could be in relationships, it could be romantically, it could be personally or spiritually. Some of those areas we may have more clear calling and more a clear purpose, but other areas is clouded. We're not sure. Maybe you struggle to even write down what your ambitions were because you're at kind of a loss. Maybe you feel like you're not at the place you thought you would be in life at this point. You haven't accomplished the things you thought you should accomplish or you were meant to accomplish. All of these things affect us, and so we struggle at times to know very clearly what is the purpose that God has given me. If someone were to ask you, hey, what is God's purpose and calling for your life? Could you very quickly and easily share it? It's a struggle. It's shifting. It's changing. And I think there's one key reason why we struggle to know the business that God has given each one of us, the purpose that God has given each one of us. And so therefore, it's hard for us to mind our own business. And the problem is the loud crowd. The loud crowd. That is, the loud noises and voices and influences of the world that put pressure on our lives to tell us what success and what a good life looks like. If you want to live a good life, if you want to be successful, if you want to put your head down on your pillow every night and be happy, well, here are the things that you need to do. Here's who you need to be. Here's what you need to accomplish. Here's what's valuable. Here's what's not. We are all affected by the loud crowd, the voices and influences that are putting pressure on our ambitions, on our dreams, on our purposes. And so it gets clouded. It gets messy. It's a struggle. There's a quote that came out in 1913. I think every one of us in this room has heard it before. Maybe you've used it. It's this. Keeping up with the Joneses. You know this? 1913, okay? Keeping up with the Joneses. Now, this quote came out in reference to something that was true for a long period of time and has not been true for a couple decades. Maybe even a little bit less than a couple decades. Maybe one decade. This is in reference to keeping up with your next door neighbors. The Joneses are the people who live next door. They're the people on your apartment level, floor. They're the townhome that's connected to yours. The Joneses are the people that live around you. So you're trying to keep up with the small social circle, climb the social ladder of the people that are around you. So if Rick next door does the lawn, you just gotta make your lawn a little bit nicer. He's got to keep up with Rick. If Sally gets a new car, it's the station wagon with the wood paneling and the seat facing backwards. You guys remember that? We had one of those. That was the coolest car. And the most awkward thing ever. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Google it. Station wagon, wood paneling, backwards seat. You literally sit in the seat backwards and stare at the car behind you. It was the weirdest thing ever. We need to bring that back. So if Sally gets the station wagon, well, here we go. I'm going to date myself again. Then what you need to get is the conversion van with the, with the TV in the middle and the VCR for the road trips. You know what I'm talking about? You guys remember that? With the captain's chairs? Just got to keep up. 
How nice does it sound to only have to be better looking than a few people in your neighborhood? To only have to project success to a few people in your neighborhood? To only have to have a nicer car or a few toys or a better vacation than a few people in your neighborhood? Keeping up with the Joneses, small social circle. Now, we're keeping up with the Kardashians. Seven billion people are the Joneses. It's not a few. It is every friend, every coworker, every classmate that you have ever met that you're connected with through all the different apps and technologies that we have. And it's not only every person that you know, it's people that you invite to speak into your life and whose content you consume that you will never meet. All of these people are speaking into your life and you're trying to keep up with them. It's the economist that you read or that you listen to who makes you feel like you should have just been able to create generational wealth with some grit and some discipline and some smart stock trades. It's the young entrepreneur who started a podcast who's 24 years old and is a multimillionaire and makes you feel like you haven't accomplished anything because it was just so easy for him. You're like, no, it's not. It's the lifestyle influencer who's trying to help people stay up to date with trends and inadvertently makes you feel like you're less than and you need to take money from savings to get a new outfit so you can keep up with where things are going. It's the Christian leader who helps lead and guide and give spiritual wisdom but inadvertently makes you feel spiritually inferior because no one's ever walked with you to teach you how to read the Bible and pray. We are trying to keep up with the Joneses and it's 7 billion people. It's tough. See, in order to mind your own business, in order to discover the business that God has for you and then focus on that, you have to fight the Joneses. You have to fight against them. You have to say, no, no, I don't have to be that. I don't have to look like that. I don't have to have achieved that. My business can be different and if I just mind the business that God has given me, then that is a good life. That is a respectable life. That is an honorable, quiet life. The problem is 7 billion people are telling us what our life should look like, and we're all trying to keep up with that. We have to fight the Joneses. Mind your own business. I wrote down a few things that I was thinking this week as I was trying to listen to the loud crowd and fight the Joneses. Ready? It's okay that I haven't written a book yet. It's okay that I haven't started a podcast and I've been trying to start one for three years. It's okay. It's okay that I can't dunk anymore. And my shot is currently broke, so I don't want to play basketball with my friends. It's okay to not have it all together and feel discouraged. It's okay to not have a productive day. It's okay to have problems that you can't fix. There are so many voices that want to say the exact opposite, that want to give us a dream and sell it to us and tell us this is what your life needs to look like to be good and respectable and successful. The Apostle Paul says, mind your own business. And what's implied is that you know the business that God has given you and that you focus on that and you put in the work. You say, God, make clear to me my calling my business, my purpose, and give me the strength and the effort to put in the work towards that 
calling. Keep comparison away. Help me fight the Joneses. Help me know those voices that have been influencing my ambitions and making me feel less than or unworthy because I'm not meeting some certain standard, which is not the standard you have for me. You know, one of the things that I think that we struggle with, not only in just minding our own business, which is fighting the Joneses, but also in putting in the work, giving the effort that's necessary and committing to excellence is that we don't know our calling clearly because of the Joneses. And so what happens is we begin to give up. Maybe some of you are there. You're like, you know what, I, I'm just going to kind of give up. I'm never going to do that. God, you've put this in my heart and this is something that I, I feel like you want me to do. But I, I keep failing at it. I'm not as good as that person. They've done more with less. We have all these roadblocks and these frustrations, and so we give up. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about those of you in the room that feel in that place. And my mind went to King David, who God gave a very clear calling, a very clear purpose. I mean, God told David, your business is to be the king of Israel. He was anointed king. But David was not made king after he was anointed. When God gave him the purpose and the calling, David waited over 10 years to see that calling come to fruition. And in the meantime, as he was waiting, he was chased and hunted down and at threat for his life. And he prays this prayer. Can you imagine how overwhelming that felt in that season? I mean, relate with King David if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like giving up, if you feel like you're behind in your life, if you feel like, I don't know what my calling is, I'm never going to accomplish it. I'm feeling frustrated and pressed in. King David, in the midst of all of this, he prays this very simple prayer. He says this, God, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. God, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Here's what he's saying. God, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm stressed, when I feel like giving up, when I'm pressed in on all sides, lead me to a rock that you can help me stand on so I can see ahead of my problems. I I need to get on something that is higher than what I'm facing so I can look beyond the immediate. I need you to lead me, God, to a place where my vision can be restored, where I can have a new vantage point from which I can see the business that you've called me to, the road that you've called me to walk. Lead me there, God. Would you pray that prayer if you're in that place? God, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to a rock that is higher than I The Apostle Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, with all of these influences, a culture that is constantly posturing, look at me, just like our culture, and he says, I urge you to make your ambition a quiet and respectable and honorable life. And the way that you do that is that you mind your own business and put in the work to the business that God has given to you. And here's the result, he says in verse 12. I like the way that the NLT translates it. It says, then people who are not believers will respect the way that you live and you will not need to depend on others. 
Here's the result of a quiet and honorable life when you mind your own business and you put in the work, fighting against the Joneses and asking God to give you a fresh vision, put you on a rock that is higher than your problems. The result is that people will respect the way you live. That non-believers, it's oftentimes translated outsiders, will respect the way that you live. I want you to think about the people that you respect. The people that you read, the people that you listen to, the people whose content you consume. I would venture to say that there are some commonalities between all the people that you respect and that you honor in different spheres of your life, professionally, romantically, personally. I would venture to say that those people that you respect, they constantly are telling you how they know what they're called to do, they know their business, and they put in the work, and they didn't depend on anybody else. Think about the people that you respect, the podcasts that you listen to, the authors that you read. They know who they are. They know who they're not. They put in the work. They didn't depend on anybody to get where they're at. See, this self-help culture, this motivational Monday clip on Instagram, all of these things, this is actually a biblical ethic to know your business and put in the work and don't depend on others, and yet the motivational talk and the self-help talk and all the self-help literature is missing something. It's a mission that Paul attaches to everyone's calling. The biblical ethic is know your calling and your purpose and put in the work and don't depend on other people. But there's a mission attached to this ethic. And Paul says, the reason that you are going to do this is not so that people will look at you and say, wow, look at you. But that non-believers will respect the way that you live so they'll come to you and say, what causes you to live that way? What motivates you? What guides you? That you would compel non-believers to ask about how you live and why you live that way. That non-believers would come to your life and say, I really respect the way that you work professionally and the ethics that guide you in the corners that you don't cut and the effort and excellence you're devoted to. What guides you? What motivates you? And your response would be, look at God, not look at me. I really honor and respect the way that you care for your family, the way that you love your spouse. What guides you? Look at God. I really honor the way that you've dedicated yourself and you care for your body and you're disciplined. Look at God. I really respect the way that you go to church every Sunday and you serve the city and you read your Bible and you pray and you're a man or a woman of faith. Look at God. Paul attaches an evangelistic mission to your calling. Every one of you in this room has a special and unique calling that God has given. A larger calling and a specific calling for this season of your life, and it has an evangelistic mission attached to it. Now, you may not have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but every one of you is called to be an evangelist by the way that you live. So that people would look at your life and respect the way that you live. Because you live an honorable life. 
you mind your own business and you put in the work and when people ask, you say to them, look at God. I want you to consider the person that has compelled you here today. It's not your friend or it's not your spouse. It's Jesus himself. Think about Jesus' life. We're here today because of Jesus. We're here to praise and learn and grow in relationship with Jesus. Did Je- does Jesus' life compel people? Yes. It compelled people when he lived his life as followers traveled from town to town to see what he said and what he would do. It compelled people to launch the largest faith in the world that has reached every country and continent from a little town of Jerusalem. Did Jesus live a quiet life? An honorable life? What's the answer? Yes. He lived the perfect life. Did Jesus mind his own business? Yes, he did. In fact, here's what Jesus said. Quote, do you not know that I am about my father's business? As everyone is trying to tell Jesus who he is and what he's supposed to do. Who he's supposed to be. He said, I am about my father's business. Not your business. Did Jesus put in the work? You're here because he put in the work. He was not dependent upon anybody. He did not ask anyone else to get up on that cross. He did. He lived a perfect life. He dedicated himself to the life that he has, was called to by the Father. He was committed to that business. He compelled people to him, and he pointed people to the Father's forgiveness and love, and he put in the work. And you're here today because of that. You're compelled by Jesus to ask questions, to worship him, to praise him, to grow in faith of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is pointing us to live the kind of life that Jesus lived as we're being made and shaped into the image of Jesus. And it's a quiet life that's honorable where you know the business that God has given you and you put in the work. And when people come to your life and they respect the way that you live and they ask questions, you say... Look at God. Look at God. I want to give you three things to work on this week. This is all posted in the app. That's why I encourage you to get it at the beginning of the service. You can write it down now. Or if you have an amazing memory, look at God. Here are the three questions for you to work on. Here's the first question. What is the business that God has called me to right now? Sometimes we go so macro, we get lost. What is the business that God has called me to right now? What's the purpose? What's the calling that God has for me right now? In my career, in my relationships, in my church, in my city. What is the business that God has called me to right now? And then secondly, what work do I need to put in that I've been neglecting? What work do I need to put into that business that I've been neglecting? What work do I need to put into my calling that I've been neglecting? And then lastly, how can I reveal and praise God in my calling? How can I reveal and praise God in my calling? 
what do I need to adjust or say or do so that when people look at me, they don't say, look at you. They say, look at God. What do I need to do? So what Paul calls us to, he urges us to. This is a life well lived. This is a good life. Amen? Will you pray with me?